Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, the Public Accounts Committee has criticised the Treasury for failing to predict the omni-shambles created by its 2015 reforms to public sector pensions and for expecting the public to foot the £17 billion bill for mistakes that it says will take generations to resolve. I suspect the answer to this question will be a firm yes, but we'll ask whether it's really as bad as all that. Uh, then, industry bodies have warned of consultation fatigue thanks to the government's uh, industrialised conveyor belt of responses, calls for evidence, new consultations into every conceivable area of pensions law and regulation and taxation and administration, all of which seem to be coming with shorter and shorter response windows. We'll ask our guests if there is an end in sight uh, or whether there might perhaps be a better way of doing things that does not involve unwieldy omnibus packages. Finally, speaking of consultation responses, the Department for Work and Pensions is to press ahead with new rules that will require trustees to report on their scheme's climate change investment risks by October, uh, but has introduced a number of changes and easements to the regulations after industry concerns. We'll ask if the amendments go far enough to make complying with the new reporting requirements a little less painful for trustees and scheme administrators. I'm Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter at Pensions Experts. I'm joined today by Claire Carey, partner at Sackers, and by Ian Neal, co-founder of Aries Insight. Thank you both very much for joining me. And uh, we will kick off with the Public Accounts Committee's attack, I suppose you could call it, on the Treasury. Uh, beginning with them, as mentioned, the Public Accounts Committee is unhappy that the government did not foresee all of the many problems created by its 2015 reforms to public sector pensions, uh, that it expects the public to foot the £17 billion bill, and that the Treasury seems not to be doing very much to address the problems that keep emerging, which the Public Accounts Committee says are affecting frontline services, with schools dropping out of the teachers' pension scheme, NHS staff retiring early, uh, etc. Do you want to kick us off on this particular topic? It was quite a wide-ranging attack by the Public Accounts Committee on a, a fairly long-standing issue, wasn't it? Were all of their criticisms fair, do you think, or could they perhaps even have gone further? I, they haven't pulled their punches quite clearly in a pretty coruscating attack on the what seems to have been largely Treasury arrogance in disdaining the advice that they were given in advance of the implementation of these uh, reforms. And so uh, through their inaction and their disdain of the advice, the taxpayer is effectively, uh, and scheme members, are on hook for significantly additional costs. It's good to see these parliamentary committees uh, exercising responsibility in holding ministers to account, uh, because there has been Certainly a tendency for governments in recent years to largely ignore Parliament and to plough on with whatever they want to do. Absolutely. And as we've mentioned, it's criticised the Treasury for expecting the public to foot the bill for its mistakes. Was there ever an alternative to this, though? I mean, I suppose ultimately the government must always fall back on the public purse to correct any expensive errors that it makes. Is there a way that this could be the impact on the public could be lessened, do you think? Or are we just going to have to stick with the fact that there's £17 billion that we need to pay? I don't think there's any other solution now. Um, the government has come up with proposals for responding to McLeod, and we know that how long it's going to take. It's going to take decades because the members concerned will be given a choice of which uh, scheme they want to take benefits from uh, at the point of their retirement. Um, the, the Public Accounts Committee also highlighted the fact that, uh, that there are other problems emerging almost as we speak. There are, for instance, other pension gaps of the like, perhaps, that we saw 
give rise to the McLeod judgments in the first place with the age discrimination case, but they say that there are other pension gaps emerging as well as a result of these uh, reforms. They don't think the Treasury is doing quite enough or quite quickly enough to collate all of the data required to manage these gaps or to assess their impact as well. If you, if I ask you to sort of project forward and do a bit of soothsaying for us, how long is it going to be before things stop getting worse and start getting better? Well, I think if the Treasury appointed ministers who had the same concern for pensions as Guy Opperman clearly does at the DWP, uh, that might be a step forward. And we may see some acceleration in engagement with proper long-term planning. Absolutely. Penny Koger of Erwin uh, Mitchell, when we were speaking to her about this story, sort of posited, a, I don't know how far-fetched the idea is, but she suggested that... Um, Going forward and talking about this long-term planning, one potential way of nixing this problem for good might be to, I think she called it to go Dutch, uh, to look at converting, whether through an act of parliament or by some other measure, uh, all affected public sector pensions from sort of 2015 onwards to collective money purchase benefits. Um, She said there's precedence with Royal Mail, for instance, which hasn't worked too badly. The Netherlands have done something similar, which hasn't worked too badly. We've had other people suggest that anything from moving all public sector pensions to DC might in the long run make sense. Do do, do you have, I mean, this might be an opportunity actually just for you to sort of plug the wishing well. If you you had to envisage the perfect public sector scheme going forward, what kind of model would it operate on? Is there some case to be made for moving to collective money purchase or to DC and public sector pensions? Well, I'm a great fan of CDC personally. But I think we have to bear in mind that there is a clear distinction between the unfunded public sector schemes, uh, such as the civil service, the armed forces, the teachers, the NHS, and the local government pension scheme, which is funded. Now, you might uh, posit a much stronger case in the future for the transfer of the local government pension scheme to a collective money purchase arrangement, perhaps. But with these unfunded schemes, we've got already uh, a deficit of in excess of two trillion pounds. And that's a pretty formidable amount of money. Not looking forward to having to pick up the tab for that one. Um, excellent. Well, in which case, we'll move on from the Public Accounts Committee to consultation uh, fatigue. The Society of Pensions Professionals, the Pensions Management Institute, and the Pensions Administration and Standards Association all told us that they're becoming a little bit worn out, actually, by the never-ending stream of consultations coming from the government and from regulatory bodies. The PMI recently had to file three separate responses in the space of two days, uh, one on DC charges for the Department for Work and Pensions, another on contribution notices for TPR, a third being a call for evidence on the staged introduction of pensions dashboards, uh, while the SPP has 13 responses to prepare and submit by the end of July. They each welcomed that the work is being done to address all these manner, all different manner of issues affecting the pensions world. But the uh, the short time frames being given for responses, coupled with the sheer number of responses required, they say risks overwhelming the industry's ability to respond properly to each consultation. They say uh, they called for more joined a more joined up approach to consultations and passer. I think recommended a minimum eight week window for responses. Uh, Claire, I'll come to you on this one if you don't mind. I mean, I imagine Sackers has been itself involved in preparing quite a few different consultation responses. Where do you stand? Are you feeling overwhelmed by the workload? 
I think you're absolutely right. There has been somewhat of, of a deluge this year already. I think government attention was naturally diverted in 2020 elsewhere with many developments held over from then. But after a year of largely treading water from a pensions perspective, we are now starting to see those many consultations landing at once as, as identified. But everyone is still also grappling with the economic and practical reality of still dealing with the ongoing pandemic. We usually do expect a significant number of consultations when we've had a big piece of legislation. And of course, we do have the new Pension Schemes Act in town, and that's to be expected. But for example, and, and except for example, we've already seen uh, that acts as a catalyst for any number of consultations. You mentioned the regulators one on contribution notices. It's also issued one on its policy approach to the new criminal sanctions under the Pension Schemes Act. But we're also currently have to, having to contend with, as I say, the overspill from last year, rather than this steady stream of developments, which we perhaps expect under a new Pensions Act, we're beginning to see something closer to a deluge. And, you know, we're not just talking about the usual suspects when it comes to issuing documentation, the DDP, the regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, the courts, etc. We're also seeing, as you mentioned, PASA involved in issuing guidance very much welcome, but as they've identified, there's no uh, coordination in terms of finding a suitable landing slot for those various consultations. So they do all have a habit of piling up. And I think the industry at the moment perhaps does feel a little bit in danger of being submerged. Obviously, they've called for this this more joined up approach and you know, for industry bodies and uh, the government and the regulators to consult with each other so they don't necessarily cover all of the same ground. Is there a risk, though, given that there is so much work that needs to be done, that if you try to have this more joined up approach or to cut the number of consultations, that you end up getting much bigger, more unwieldy consultations, fewer in number, but harder to get to grips with? I have in mind the one that came out Tuesday will be when for listeners to this program, um, which was a single government response to two different consultations on improving outcomes for DC members, I think it was. So we have to cover this in the space of about a thousand words. Uh, That was tricky for us to do, just to try and condense all of that material into one relatively short piece. Is there a risk that omnibus bills uh, or omnibus responses, sorry, actually have their own problems in terms of parity? Well, clearly, the ones that we saw yesterday were were sort of an overspill, as they described from last year. And I think, hence, they've all kind of come out at once. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we had two consultation responses and we had also a, a fresh call for evidence on further or greater DC consolidation. And agreed, you, you will tend to get the bigger pump together if there is, you know, less or more time between consultations. But I think that one's really more of a hangover from last year, and that's why they're sort of trying to push on with that. Um, we've also seen, obviously, the regulators' consultation on its draft single code of practice, which has been in the works for quite a few years already, land this year as well. So I think the problem is it's not necessarily the time frame; it's actually choice of actually putting them out when there are already major changes going on in the industry that need to be addressed and need to be addressed quickly. 
And I think, you know, it, there needs to be more thought, I think, in terms of deciding when to put things out and acknowledging the pressure, not just on p- the recipient of those consultations, but also people having to draft them. And a good example of that is the recent transfers consultation. And this is under the Pension Schemes Act. The idea is to introduce conditions that need to be met before statutory transfer can be paid. But we literally had about four weeks to respond to that consultation, which is a very short period. It's a very obviously noble cause trying to cut down on the vulnerability of people to pension scams. But it also tries to impose some obligations on trustees and managers of pension schemes that, frankly, they just won't be in their gift to know, such as the level of risk in terms of the investments within the receiving scheme. So I think they just need a little bit more thought as well when they're trying to push these consultations out. Sure thing. Ian, do you have a, a view on this that you'd like to, to share? Um, obviously, Passer suggested they would hope at least for a sort of this minimum eight week window that would give them enough time to prepare the kind of response that they think these consultations deserve. Uh, I know the new, the new code of practice one, I think they all agreed was a complete nightmare to have to compile all of this response, this huge, massive consultation. Um, do, do you have a view on what the sort of the, the ideal uh, response window is? I mean, uh, is it and also is it likely to happen given the amount of work that needs to be done to clear this backlog that Claire has identified? Well, the government principles used to state that 12 weeks was the expected time for consultations. I found that in uh, the National Archives. More recent statements of the government principles have been more circumspect. But 12 weeks has until quite recently been the norm. As Claire notes, there's been recent consultations limited to six weeks or even four weeks, which is quite unsatisfactory. It's also very noteworthy that the government usually takes a great deal longer to produce a response to their consultations. It's not unknown for a year or more to elapse before something actually happens. So there's an element of unfairness there, I think. There's also um, an important lesson which the government persistently fails to learn, and that is the implications of such decisions as they make for providers to implement, particularly where there are IT changes required. They will produce regulations as they have recently, coming into force in October this year or April next year, which have significant implications for costs and, and time frames which are not sufficiently recognised. Sure thing. And I think there there is some talk, isn't there, of another public sector pensions bill at some point. So given that these always seem to spare a huge raft of consultations, I don't know whether we'll be seeing an end to this. We'll move on from that then to our final uh, topic of the day. The Department of Work and Pensions is pressing ahead with its new, what I'm just going to call TCFD rules, uh, albeit with a, a number of easements relating to the scope and timing of the reporting requirements, as well as to scenario analysis, risk management metrics, targets and penalties. Uh, Pensions Minister Garpman says these easements are intended to make sure the added regulatory burden is reasonable and proportionate while still retaining the wider benefits of the measures. Uh, schemes with more than £5 billion of assets will have to comply with the new rules from October. And they will include a link to these in their annual report and accounts. And then subject to another consultation, because we haven't talked enough about those already, the measures will be uh, then expand to include smaller schemes from, I think, 2024. Trustees have an awful lot of work to do to collect and collect the data required to fill any gaps. They won't have to do this, though, if it will incur disproportionate costs. And one of the easements relates to the reporting of scope three or value chain emissions data. These are the result of activities from assets not owned or controlled by the reporting organization, uh, but which the organization indirectly impacts in its value chain. Uh, in other words, 
pretty much everything. Uh, these emissions often account for the majority of an organization's total greenhouse gas emissions. They're notoriously tough to quantify, and that is why trustees will no longer have to report these uh, in the first year they are subject to the requirements. And Claire, do you want to kick us off on this? Quite a few easements, but still quite a lot to come to terms with for trustees, isn't it? Do you think they're going to be ready? I think you're absolutely right. There's a huge amount here. And and obviously, again, this is a good example of where we've had many changes in relation to taking account of environment, social and governance issues uh, coming through the SIP and statements of compliance in, in recent years. And we're now moving on to a greater focus on the governance and disclosure and reporting requirements in relation to the climate change risks and opportunities faced by schemes. And I think it is this quick succession that makes it feel like it's a bit of a, an assembly line of things on climate change. Clearly, the government is committed through the Paris Agreement and its own roadmap to try to make sure that the economy as a whole is subject to more mandatory climate-related disclosures by 2025. And this is just part and parcel of this. But I, I do worry about the the need for perhaps specialist advice here, because this really isn't an area that you can dabble in. There's an awful lot there, things about, you know, statistical modelling, also metrics that you're going to have to report against. And I think it's important that people do, or trustees do take advice on this, because as I say, it's it's part of an ongoing process, but there's an awful lot of technical information in this consultation and in the regulations. And although the statutory guidance is there designed to help, I think, you know, there's an awful lot to get to grips with. Sure thing. And and besides the easements, I mean, there are a couple of little qualifiers inserted in the text, aren't there? I mean, they said trustees will be required as far as they are able to undertake scenario analysis, or they have to fill gaps in data, but only if it won't incur disproportionate costs. And I imagine that to to the layman, these things seem a bit like, well, you know, I can just say that I'm, I'm not particularly able today, so I can't do this. But I, these are quite well established, aren't they, as sort of legal terms? There are clear definitions as to what makes a trustee able. Am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, as far as able is defined as trustees taking all such steps as are reasonable and proportionate in the particular circumstances, obviously taking into account costs or likely costs, which will be incurred by the scheme and the time required to be spent by trustees uh, and other people acting on their behalf. And there are examples in the statutory guidance of what that might look like. But clearly, so it's not just a case of saying, well, I've done what I think I've done my best, but it's about looking at those examples and, and measuring yourself against those in terms of whether you've taken, you know, all such steps as a reasonable and proportionate. So it, it is important to bear that in mind. And there are established ways in which you can do that. Sure thing. And, and Ian, do you want to come in on this? Um, obviously, this is quite a lot of work and it will only get more as they do eventually have to report on, for instance, scope three emissions and trustees have an awful lot on their plates at the moment with other data cleansing exercises with McLeod, with wherever uh, relevant, with, with GMP equalization. There's a lot on which they're having to come to terms with. Lots of it's quite new, especially in terms of these reporting requirements on climate change and governance. Uh, so I think I'll ask you the same question. I mean, are trustees, do you think, broadly ready for this or do they need time to prepare for the entailments of something like these requirements? There will be a great deal of variation, of course, uh, across schemes. I suspect that uh, many trustees are unprepared for the demanding level of work that um, Claire has, has outlined. And it will certainly be necessary to appoint competent advisors. And I don't know whether there is sufficient expertise available to pension schemes trustees at at this level at the moment 
because there will be enormous demand from other parties as well, such as asset managers for this kind of expertise, for example, in identifying and, and operating metrics. This is only looking, of course, at climate change, but there are two other elements to ESG, which uh, schemes of all the trustees are also uh, required to monitor, and there's even more challenge afoot there. One of the key risks, of course, which I think the pension regulators are well aware of, is that trustees will be driven down a tick box approach um, to compliance. Alternatively, when they report, the pensions regulator might find that their reporting is inadequate or substandard, which will add to the impetus for consolidation. And as we know, the regulator in Guyotham in particular is very keen on the idea, not just of DC consolidation, but also DB consolidation as well. There's also the point that a lot of uh, the, the commentary naturally focuses on the response from defined benefit schemes. And there is a supposition in some quarters that DC gets off lightly. But in, in fact, um, if you think about the fact that members are bearing the risks in DC schemes, it's even more important that trustees of DC schemes get on the ball with this because the long-term risks presented by climate change, even in the short term to some extent, are very significant. Well, that brings us to the close of uh, the principal part of the programme. But of course, there is always a pensions angle. And Ian, I think you had one for us today. Do you want to take it away? Yes. uh, Going back to the first item on the the podcast today about the PSE's response um, and challenge to the Treasury, We might find, uh, as individual members of society and as parents, for example, of children in schools, we might have a child at the moment who needs some special support. And we might find suddenly that the school is telling us that that can no longer be provided for. And the cause can be traced directly back to the requirement placed on employers to pay significantly more in pension contributions and whose employees are members of unfunded public sector pension schemes, also have numerous other budgetary commitments. Social care, education, health care, there's lots of other responsibilities that employers will have, and they have to prioritise pension contributions very often. Absolutely. Well, there is, of course, always a pensions angle, isn't there? And uh... This is this is just another reason why more people need to read pensions expert. I think they can see why all of these decisions which are affecting their lives are in fact being made. But uh, that brings us to the uh, end of the program. Thank you both uh, to Neil and to Claire very much for joining us. Um, as ever, we will be back in two weeks' time, and we look forward to seeing you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.